0: Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Today we are in week three of a series that we started a few weeks ago entitled Not My Job, Know Your Role, Don't Play God. And I know that is a bit of an aggressive title. It's a bit of uh, an aggressive way to frame in what we're talking about. But I think this is a conversation that we desperately need to be having, especially right now in the midst of our culture, in the midst of all that we're facing. It's an imperative conversation for the church. Um, I had a guy who recently started attending the church. He came up to me a few weeks ago and he said, "Uh, I noticed that you guys do a lot of really aggressive series around here. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I was watching on YouTube before I showed up and you know, the first one I watched was Fight Right. And then, you know, the one after that, I I came and I was watching. It was like, am I going to heaven? He's like, I felt very uncomfortable and very insecure. And then I walk in, and the first week of this series is like, know your role, bro. Don't do God's job. And he's like, you guys are very aggressive. (laughs) And I'm like, I guess we are. So, hey, if today is your first week at the Father's house, welcome to the most aggressive church in town. Good to have you. Uh, Next month, we'll be doing a series on the book of Revelation and the white throne judgment. And it's going to be great. no. (laughs) but I think we need to have some honest conversations in church, right? We don't wanna glaze over and just talk about things that don't matter. We need to talk about the issues at hand. And I think this is a massively important conversation we need to be having right now. What is my role as a believer in the world that I find myself in? What jobs have I tried to take from God that only God is capable of doing? I think we need to talk about these things. Um, I I love the way my wife framed in the series last week. I thought it was a brilliant statement. She said, you know, Jesus asks us to live like him, but he did not ask us to be him. My job is not to be God. My job is to live the way he's called me to live, but I'm going to let God be God and I will be man. And ultimately, that's the goal of this series, for us to relinquish some jobs that we have no business doing because only God is capable of carrying those things. And so in week one, uh, we started this conversation by talking about the topic of conviction. It is not my job to convict the world of their sin. It's not my job to point the finger at people that are far from God and wave the signs and tell them how angry that God is at them. That's not my job. It's the Holy Spirit who draws people unto himself. And so we we determine that we're gonna be people who drop the rocks and we're gonna let love lead because ultimately only love is gonna change people's lives. And then last week, my wife preached a message. By the way, I thought it was one of the greatest messages I've ever heard from her. It was amazing. And she talked about the subject of the fruit of righteousness, and I loved what she discussed. She said, fruit production is not our job. You are incapable of producing fruit. That, that's impossible for us to do. But our role is to take responsibility for the environment of our lives. To determine, is there anything in the, in the garden of my life that is keeping fruit from, from producing? And I heard that that was a great conversation among a number of groups this week as people began to talk practically about what their lives need to look like so that it could be conducive to fruit production. And so if you missed either of those, you can go back and check them out. And on the podcast or on the YouTube channel. Uh, today, as we get into the third week, I am going to talk to you about a subject that, according to the prophecy of the aggressive church, uh, is going to be aggressive today. Uh, it's going to be something that's going to make many of us feel uncomfortable, but I think it's something that we must discuss. And I need to offer this disclaimer as we get in, because uh, I don't want this sermon to feel like a response or a knee-jerk reaction. Um, we actually plan ahead here. We, we don't just kind of what are you saying this week, God? Like, we plan and we, we, we do the best of our, to, the be, to the best of our ability. We try to figure out, okay, what's God speaking in this season to our church? So this week was planned well in advance of today, but uh, in light of current events, it might feel like a response. That's not how it is. The Holy Spirit's good, and he tells you what to speak well before uh, we walk into these settings. And so it's going to feel very relevant, but that's God's fault, not mine, okay? Because <laughs> uh, today I want to talk about this subject, Vengeance. I wanna talk about the fact that vengeance is not our job. Vengeance is a job that only God is wired for. And if vengeance is not a a word that you use on a day-to-day basis, let me me give you a couple of synonyms that might uh, help contextualize it a little bit. Uh, Words like revenge, avenge, retribution, payback, get even, settle the score, clap back, if you like the social media term or if you prefer the SNL version from Bomb Kwee I will cut you, yeah. <laughs> all of those fit into the subject of vengeance. All of those, revenge, avenge, the clapbacks on social media, all of that fits into this idea of revenge. And I think as a culture, in fact, probably as a world, but definitely as a culture, the idea of revenge, getting back at somebody, vengeance. I think it's something that we don't just embrace. I actually think it's something we celebrate. We rather enjoy seeing people humiliated when someone gets back at them. And we love having the last word. And I mean, think about even our entertainment, the movies that we watch. Like we celebrate when the villain is taken out at the hands of the Avenger. We we celebrate when public figures are drugged down by those that they hurt. And We celebrate the the fact that somebody has a response on social media. We might even repost it and double tap it and go like, oh, yeah, they, they got the last word. And like, we seem to enjoy this idea of revenge. In fact, it's something that we think we probably have the right to. We cling to it like, ah, yeah, that's my right to get back. But I think we need to take a step back today. In fact, this is my hope, that we would consider if this is truly something we should be celebrating. Because what we're celebrating, only God is supposed to be initiating when it comes to the subject of vengeance. In fact, if you go do a search to the entire Bible, which I'm sure you'll do this week, um, you'll find this phrase time and time again in scripture that makes it very clear. It's not like elusive or a consideration. It is black and white, no gray area, that vengeance is ultimately something that only God is supposed to take care of. Vengeance is his job. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, Hebrews chapter 10. We're gonna look at Romans 12 here in just a moment. There's scriptures that speak specifically to this, but then the idea itself is littered all throughout scripture. That as humans, it is not our job to take out revenge. It is our job to entrust that to the capable hands of God. And here's the phrase you'll find in scripture. If you have a Bible, Romans 12, verse 19, this will be our key text today. Paul says this, Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, and here's the phrase, Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. That is a very clear statement. <laughs> there is no gray area there. Vengeance is mine. I'm taking control of this one. And yet, as many of us have experienced, it seems to be one of those jobs that we have a very hard time entrusting to God. Many of us feel maybe. Clinging to it with white knuckles, like we really want to help participate in the process of bringing about God's justice, bringing about His revenge. But my hope today, in the next couple of moments, is that we would let it go, let it go, that we would entrust that back to God and that we would discover what our true role is when it comes to dealing with those who have offended us or have hurt us. So I'm going to pray, and as we get into this, if you'd like to take notes, I'm going to give you a title. I want to call this chat on the verge of vengeance, on the verge of vengeance. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you today for your presence. We thank you for what you're doing in the house. God, I thank you for lives that are being transformed and people who are taking their next steps through water baptism and just all the incredible things you are doing in our church. May we not lose sight of that. May we, may we not get buried in the day-to-day minutia of our problems, but may we get, get a glimpse above the weeds and go, oh my gosh, God is moving in my life. He's moving in my church right now. And Lord, as we get around this subject today of vengeance, obviously an uncomfortable one, um, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd speak to us, not by me, but by your word, that your word would cut straight to the heart of where we're living and you would show us how to respond. When people offend us, when we're wronged, where there's injustice, would you show us how to respond correctly as people of Jesus? We love you we pray this in your name. Amen, amen, amen. All right, let me ask a question real quick. Um, how many of you grew up in a city or went to a high school, maybe, where there was a bit of a rivalry between your high school and another high school in town? Any of you guys? Oh, okay, this service apparently went to a different set of high school. Y'all from the ghetto? The first group there, you know that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's like four or five people raised their hand. In the first service. So this is this is my tribe. Yeah, my hand is up. Uh, but my hand is up because um, you know I went to that kind of school where there was always like fights at the football games, and the police had to come and. You know, all, all that kind of stuff. And, and ultimately, my hand is raised because I'm kind of responsible for some of that. Uh, a little confession time as your pastor. I don't know if I've shared this with anybody. Uh, we're gonna delete this from the recording so I don't get arrested. But um, when I was in, in high school, um, uh, my city, my town, there was less than 100,000 people. There were only two major high schools, uh, Vacaville High School and Wilsey Wood, my alma mater. Uh, and the, our, our, uh, our mascot at Wilsey Wood was a wildcat and the Vacaville uh, High School had a bulldog as their mascot. And, you know, we, we didn't really have a whole lot of like ownership for our school. People weren't wearing like their, you know, their, their sweatshirts and all the gear, like no one really cared that much. And things were pretty amicable between the two high schools up until my junior year. Like to the extent of our rivalry was people would chant at football games, like cats rule, dogs drool. And, you know, they would turn it around like dogs rule, cats drool, which is stupid because it contradicts the nature of things. Dogs ultimately drool. Uh, But there there wasn't a whole lot of rivalry. And all of that changed my junior year, uh, and partially because of me and my friends. So we decided in my junior year that there wasn't enough antagonism, there wasn't enough instigation happening between the two schools, and so we wanted to set about the rivalry. And we developed this group called the Cat Cartel. Now on paper, here's what the Cat Cartel was. It was an all-male cheerleading team that would go to the women's sports and we would cheer for the volleyball games and for the softball games and for the basketball games. We thought it was an injustice that the cheerleaders only got to go to, like to the men's games. You know, They played men's football and men's basketball. Like, yo, equal opportunity. We need to cheer for the ladies. Come on, the ladies need a cheer team. So that's how we pitched it to the principal. However... All of it was a cover for what we really wanted to do, which was to instigate a rivalry between the two high schools. And here's how we did it. Started off somewhat innocent, dressed in all black. Middle of the night, we went over to the other school. We broke in and we found our way into their courtyard and they had a big bulldog painted on the side of the wall. We thought, okay, this is simple enough. We'll we'll just paint a little cat over the top of the bulldog. So we put some ears on the cat, some whiskers, and you know, cats rule underneath it. And then we took off into the night. A couple of days later, some of their juniors and seniors discovered that the cat cartel had come and attacked their school, and they decided that they needed to create their own little group to retaliate, and they called themselves the Dog Pound. I am not making this up. This is real life stuff, okay? This is is my story. (laughs) So the Dog Pound retaliated by coming to our school, and completely unoriginal, they just painted over our cat with a dog. But that was enough to start the war. And for the next few months, things got incredibly out of hand. We found every possible way we could to like, ruin their property, deface their school. Like By the time it was all done, we had bleached our school name and our mascot into their football field for everybody to see. We dyed their swimming pool blue, We literally did a drive-by water ballooning of their cheerleading practice and their tennis practice with some unmentionable substances inside of the water balloons. Like, it was all bad. And eventually the principals got wind of everything and they shut it all down. They installed video cameras at both of the high schools and they threatened to press criminal charges if we continued to exist. So now the cat cartel just lives in infamy. They shut down and I'm here to speak of all its greatness. (laughs) This is your pastor, people. Just throwing that out there, okay? Yeah, you're welcome. But as I was thinking about this message, I was thinking about this back and forth retaliation and this this, this thirst for revenge. And and I remember, I remember even being a junior in high school, I remember the idea that every time they retaliated, every time they wronged our school, there was like a rage that welled up on the inside of me. There was this, this justification for revenge. In that moment, I just felt like I couldn't sit still until we got back until we did something in return. And it had to be worse, it had to be more painful, we had to, ha- had to be greater than what they did to us. And it became this back and forth match to see who could hurt the other team, the other person more. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, that's exactly how revenge works. Revenge is this ever evolving, never ending thirst on the inside of us, never quenched, this desire to go, I have to get back and I have to hurt them more than they hurt me. I have to take out my anger on them more than they took it out on me. And, and, and every time we, we think we got the last laugh, we think we got the last word in, we think it's gonna bring some semblance of like console to our, whole, our, our heart. At the end of the day, it's just like adding another log to the fire and things only get worse and worse and worse and worse and they never change. In fact, the, uh, the theologian N.T. Wright he says it like this, and I love this. He says, vengeance keeps evil in circulation. Whether in a family or a town or an entire community like the Middle East, the culture of revenge unless broken is never ending. Both sides will be able to justify further atrocities by reference to those that they themselves have suffered. I think we have all experienced the reality of that statement at some level, and it probably goes far beyond just your high school rivalry with the other school. We live in a culture, we find ourselves in communities, maybe even in families, where that exists. This unquenchable thirst to get back, and it just keeps evil in circulation. We just keep spiraling out of control trying to get back at the other person. But listen, church, I believe, especially now, with the heightened sensitivity of our culture and everybody finding reasons to get offended, I think we have gotta get this issue right. I think we need to break that thirst for revenge. I think we need to get out of this cycle where we're just looking for the next move we can make or the next post we can make to to, to finally justify ourselves. I think we need to step back. And by the grace of God, we need to let God do his job in this area. And and so to that end, I wanna look at a character in the Bible today. I shouldn't call him a character. He was a real person, a person in the Bible today who I think exemplifies the idea of entrusting revenge to God more so than anybody else in scripture next to Jesus. And this particular guy, he, he had many opportunities to take out revenge on his enemies, but time and time again, he proved that he was not going to be the guy that took matters into his own hands, but he would entrust it back to God. There's a guy by the name of David. Um, I, I don't have a, a, a time to read a bunch of the stories about what David did, but let me give you just a couple of, of snapshots of his life. Uh, there was a time when David was being pursued by King Saul, and King Saul was trying to kill him because he knew that God had ordained David would become the king of Israel. And Saul ultimately wanted that to go to one of his kids, and so he was trying to take David out in an attempt to, to, to ruin God's plan for David's life. And so he hurled a couple of spears at him, and he missed, and David flees. And after he flees, he gathers together about 600 men, and he's got this little, little army, this ragtag group, but they're fleeing from Saul, so they're hiding out in En And Saul brings a couple thousand troops to find him and take him out. And one day during the, the search, uh, Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself, to go to the bathroom. And he doesn't realize that in the back of that cave is David and all 600 of his men. And all of David's army is instigating like, hey, David, this is your moment. Come on, take him out while his pants are down. Literally, like take him out. And, and for a moment, David thinks about it, but he makes a statement. He's like, who am I to take out vengeance on the Lord's anointed? yeah, I know he's right there in the cave, and I could could end this right now. I even know that God's called me to take the throne, but I'm not going to do it with my own hands. I'm going to trust that one to God, and he lets him go. A couple of chapters later, David finds himself in Saul's camp, and Saul's asleep, and his right-hand guy, Abishai, is with him, and Abishai says, hey, I can do it right now. I can take a spear, and I can thrust it right through Saul, and done. You'll become king, and David rebukes him. This guy who's trying to to help him, he rebukes him. He's like, no one asked your opinion. No, this is God's job, not my job. I'm not gonna take him out. Yes, even though he's sleeping right in front of me. Later on, after David becomes king, his son Absalom tries to usurp his authority and take the throne. He sleeps with David's wives on top of the the palace and all of Israel witnesses it. And David's army says, let us go and take take out your son. Take out this guy who's taken the throne. And David's response is, maybe God is trying to teach me something right now. So rather than take out revenge, I'm going to flee the city and let my son sit in this position of authority that he was never called to. But if God wants me to come back, he'll bring me back to the city. Time and time and time again, David had opportunity to exercise his seeming right for revenge. But time and time again, he relinquished it and he left it in the hands of God. Except for this one time. (laughs) Except for this one time when he finds himself, according to our title, on the verge of vengeance. Someone has wronged him, and he's ready to take it out, take out revenge on this guy. Something rather unique happens, and that's the one I want to talk about for the next couple of moments. 1 Samuel chapter 25, here's the story. It says, there was a wealthy man from Maon who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep-shearing time. The man's name was Nabal, and his wife, Abigail, was a sensible and beautiful woman. Pause there for just a moment. Uh, my pastor used to say that anytime time the eternal canon of Scripture tells you that this person was beautiful, they're probably pretty good looking. Like, if it's recorded in the Bible, you got it going on, all right? You're a babe. So, <laughs> Abigail is a hottie. All right, let's be clear about what we're talking about here. Okay. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all of his dealings. When David heard that Nabal was shearing sheep, he sent ten of his young men to Carmel with this message for him. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I'm told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us in Carmel, we never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men, and they will tell you this is true. So would you be kind to us, since we have come at the time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David." David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered at the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered from my shears and give it to a band of outlaws who comes from who knows where? So David's young men returned, and they gave the message. Nabal, Nabal had said, David says, get your swords, He strapped on his own and then 400 men started off with David and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. David and his crew, 400, they head out to Nabal's house and they're about to exercise some justice. They're going to kill this guy. Now that might seem like an overreaction considering the magnitude of what David has just asked this guy. Think about it for a moment. He just showed up on some dude's doorstep and said, hey, me and 599 of my friends are here. We'd like to eat. <laughs> Table for 600, please. Like, that's a, that's a tall order, right? If I came to your door, hey, me and my whole church are here. Uh, we would like to eat. We'd love for you to feed us. You would probably respond the same way that Nabal did. Like, hey, take a hike. I don't have enough food to feed all you guys. There's no way. I don't know who you are. This kind of makes sense, so it seems odd that David would want to kill somebody for refusing to, pay him, to, to feed him and his, and his men. But the reason this felt justified to David is because ultimately in this day and age, there was a culture of reciprocity. Anytime you did something for somebody else, you did something to somebody else, there was an expectation that you would receive it in return. And this worked both to the positive and to the negative. If you did something kind for somebody, if you did something good for his people, then the assumption built in was that when you were in need, when you wanted him to do something kind for you, that he would return the favor that you had already issued him. And if you had done something evil, you could expect evil in return. And so David here with his men, he expects Nabal to give him what he's asking for because he's taken care of Nabal's guys out right there in the wilderness. He kept them safe and he fed them. And he's like, I did this for your guys. You should do this for my guys. And yet instead of good being repaid with good, Nabal chooses to repay good with evil. So David says, all right, if that's how you want to play this game, fair enough, you gonna die. I will cut you. (laughs) So he grabs his swords and they head out. And for a moment, it looks like David is about to take vengeance into his own hands until something happens. Abigail, the hot one, she hears what David's men have asked her husband, and she heard about her husband's response. And so she realizes, okay, this is not going to end well for my husband. So she grabs a bunch of food, loads up some donkeys, and she heads out to find David and his men. And as they're approaching her property, she meets up with them. She falls face down on the ground, and she begins to beg for mercy. And look at what Abigail says here in 1 Samuel chapter 25. She says, Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live... Since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all of your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here's a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I've offended you in any way. The Lord will surely bless you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles. Don't let this be a blemish on your record, then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. Translation, thank you for keeping me from doing God's job. Thank you for, ta- for stopping me from taking revenge into my own hands. I forgot for a moment that that's God's job and not my job, but thank you for the interruption. I needed it. Now, I don't have time to read to you how the story ends, but ultimately, uh, Nabal has a stroke. Check. He dies 10 days later. Check. And David gets to marry the hot girl. Check. (laughs) And they have beautiful babies, and they lived happily ever after. But there's a phrase in this story that I want to focus on for a moment, a phrase that Abigail uses to remind David of something and something that David seemed to forget in the midst of all this. And and this phrase, I think, is the greatest motivation when it comes to us entrusting the job of vengeance back to God. And and no, it's not that God killed his enemies and that he got to marry a beautiful woman. Although if those things motivate you, then by all means, let it be your motivation. (laughs) But, But there's this statement that she makes that I think is so powerful. Right as she interrupts David along the road, here's what she says. She says, the Lord will surely bless you for not taking these matters into your own hands. If you're taking notes, write this down. When it comes to vengeance, you have two options. You can get back or you can get blessed. Let that settle in for just a moment. You can get back or you can get blessed. Every time somebody offends you, every time somebody inflicts pain, every time an injustice is done, you have two options. You can get back or you can get blessed. And I think that is a decision that faces us every single day right now. In small matters and in large matters, We are constantly being tempted with the bait of revenge. They hurt me. They offended me. I'm latching myself to this because they offended my friend. They offended my family. Whether it's the community, whether it's the the workplace environment you find yourself in. Yeah, I know this is uncomfortable, but it's the reality of what we face on a day-to-day basis. There is this thirst for revenge, And like David, I think many of us on a regular basis find ourselves on the verge of vengeance. A post away from vengeance. A conversation away from vengeance. Just ready to take it out. But I want us to stop for just a moment on a Sunday morning and I want to ask you something. Is that really what you want? Is it? I mean, is that, is that really the the result you want just to get back because you can you you can refuse to reconcile you can post the thing you you can cancel the relationship you can get on yelp and write a negative review (laughs) you can do all of those things and it might even feel good for a moment but let me warn you as abigail warned david at the end of the day Once that good feeling wears off, all you'll be left with is a guilty conscience knowing that you stooped down to the level of the person that offended you. So yeah, it'll feel good going down, but it won't sit well. Or there's another option. Instead of heeding the voice that nags you, that rage on the inside that says you need to get back, you can listen to another voice. You could listen to Abigail. Abigail you could listen to the holy interruption. His name is the Holy Spirit, and he takes on the role of Abigail every single day in your life. And he tries to stop you dead in your tracks before you make a decision that you're going to regret. And don't be fooled. He will talk to you in real terms about what you're facing. He is not afraid to get right to the heart of the matter. You might be able to hide it from everybody else and Just kind of hold on to that inner rage and think it's you and your own little secret, but he'll talk to you about it. He'll address you when it comes to that father that abused you or abandoned you. He'll talk to you about that ex-spouse that you want to exercise judgment on and they betrayed you. He'll talk to you about the family member, the friend that hurt you. He'll talk to you about the business partner, the employer that left you ruined. He will talk to you about every single situation that you're facing right now but every time he does, he will lay before you two choices. Do you want to get back or would you like to get blessed? It's your choice. And listen, I'm not trying to minimize what people have walked through. I know that many of us have suffered atrocities at the hands of other people. People who've been abused and people who've been mistreated and I I am not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that you are not allowed to have any emotion or you're supposed to be just some kind of pacifist that goes, you know what, it's fine. They hurt me. It's fine. I'm gonna be great. Listen, you're allowed to be angry. Jesus flipped some tables, all right? He didn't flip anybody off, but he flipped some tables, okay? You're allowed to get angry. But as it says in Ephesians chapter four, in your anger, do not sin. There is such an anger and a rage that's good that will channel you to do the right thing. But then there's a rage that you just keep adding locks to the fire with and it will cause you to try to take out revenge. So you can get angry, but you don't get to get back. That's God's job. And I wonder if the Holy Spirit brought you here today is having you watch today for the sole purpose, of stepping back, taking a breath and going, is this really what I want? Do I really want to get back? Or... Would I prefer to get blessed? Uh, That that decision lies in front of us today. And I'm not suggesting this is easy either, okay? I know that what I'm saying right now is far easier to preach than it is to live out. To allow yourself to be wronged by somebody else and to, to choose to just hold back and let God handle his job. I get it. So, so, so let, me, let me make this a little more practical before we conclude. Let me offer a couple of handles to this so that we can actually walk this out. Because yes, vengeance is ultimately God's job, but we also have a role to play in all of this. And that role is not to just sit back and let ourselves be abused, okay? Romans chapter 12, let's go back to where we started this whole thing. Verse 17, Paul says this, "'Do not repay anyone evil for evil. "'Be careful to do what is right "'in the eyes of everyone. "'If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, "'live at peace with everyone.'" Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head and God will reward you. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's your role, church. Our role when it comes to vengeance is simply this, to overcome evil with good. Instead of responding to evil with evil, it's to respond to evil with good. And again, this is not passive, okay? It's not, we just sit back. It's not good to not do anything. That's not good. It is to actively do the opposite of what has been done to us. If someone is dishonoring, we choose to honor. If someone curses, we choose to bless. If someone hates, we choose to love. We are actively doing the opposite of whatever evil has been done to us. That is our role in the matter. And that looks different for every single one of us. For some of us, it might literally be choosing to apologize first without waiting for the other person to apologize. It could be that simple. For others, it might be a willingness to extend forgiveness even when the other person is not asking for your forgiveness. In fact, even if they never ask for your forgiveness to extend it because it's not about them it's about you for some it might be canceling a debt that somebody owes you for others it might be no matter how hard it is every time that person's name comes up you refuse to speak dishonorably about them and you bite your tongue and you say I'm gonna do what my mama told me if I don't have anything nice to say I'm not gonna say nothing at all I'm gonna just sit here (laughs) yeah he's a good guy that guy yeah (laughs) yeah It's very practical, overcoming evil with good. And I'm not gonna try to contextualize this and give you a million examples because you got Abigail, you got the Holy Ghost. He'll speak to you. He'll tell you exactly what you need to do. But our role is to overcome evil with good. And Paul tells us two things happen when we do that. Number one, he says, we leave room for God. I rather like that phrase. When we choose to overcome evil with good, we leave room for God. You know what that is? That's me stepping back and going, God, this is your battle. This is not mine. I'm not gonna fight this one. I do not war against flesh and blood. I war against principalities and powers. And I'm not gonna stoop down to the level and get into some petty cat fight. I'm letting you take this one. And let's be honest. When we leave room for God to take out vengeance, he does a much better job than we do. (laughs) I mean, I'm not trying to be spiteful here, but God's pretty good at that. He does it a lot better than I do. That's why it says in Hebrews 10, woe to the person who ends up in the hands of an angry God who is avenging his beloved. Come on, if you want to hurt me, you want to talk trash about me, that's cool. God will take care of you. That's a good place to live right there. (laughs) And here's the beauty of it. Here's why it leaves room for God. Ultimately, the reason God's so much better at doing his job of vengeance is because his vengeance is not retributive it's not an attempt for you to get back or him to get back at the other person. It is always restorative because he wants to get to the heart of the matter and bring that person back to a place of wholeness and healing. And that's why he's much better at it than we will ever be. So when we overcome evil with good, we're leaving room for God to do just that. But, but he says the second thing happens and it's, it's so peculiar, but it's something that I want, I want to conclude with because it's such a powerful image. In fact, the bank can come and we'll conclude with this. Paul says when... When you overcome evil with good, it is like heaping burning coals on the top of somebody's head, and the Lord will reward you for it. Does that statement not seem to completely contradict everything that we just said? (laughs) Like heaping burning coals on somebody's head? That doesn't seem very nice. Like, here you go, fire. That seems spiteful. It seems like revenge. It doesn't seem like overcoming evil with good but that's because we need to understand contextually what Paul is speaking about here in Romans chapter 12. Uh, Gillespie, let me me borrow you real quick. Um, In biblical times, fire was incredibly important. In fact, it was a matter of life or death. Um, If you didn't have fire, you did not have the ability to cook your food, you didn't have the ability to heat your home, you didn't have the ability to purify your utensils if you needed to purify them or any of the other articles around the house. It was literally a life or death matter. So every home in biblical times had a hearth. It had a place where they would uh, guard these, these coals and this, and this wood and they would make sure that there was always fire around for the purposes of survival when you went to bed at night, you might load a little extra wood on the fire so that when you woke up the next morning, there were some coals that were still burning there and you could add a little oxygen and ignite them again and have your fire for the day. But occasionally, you might find yourself in a situation where your coals went out. You didn't have a fire in your house any longer. And if you found yourself in such a situation, then it was customary for you to take a bowl, a vessel, and to go over to your neighbor's house to knock on your neighbor's door, There you go. (laughs) And then to get down on your knees at your neighbor's doorstep and put the bowl on top of your head. And when your neighbor opened the door, he understood that this statement was one of of need, of humility. He understood that you were unable to survive without him offering you up some of the coals from his own hearth. So he would run over to the fireplace. He'd get his coals. And in an effort to bless you and say, hey, I'm going to help you out, he would pour burning coals on the top of your head. It's it's a statement of blessing. What Paul is saying, what Solomon says in Proverbs 25, where this phrase is first mentioned, ultimately what Jesus is saying is that what you don't realize is when somebody offends you, somebody hurts you, they're actually in this posture of desperation. They're actually on their knees in front of you. You think that they're trying to take out their vengeance on a power play, and they're, they're being rude and cruel, and at the end of the day, what you don't realize is that they're broken, they're hurt, they're coming humbly, and they're asking, will you bless me instead of curse me? Will you forgive me instead of judge me? Are you gonna try to hold this against me and get back, or will you, will you choose to, to give me mercy and grace instead? And when they find themselves down on their knees, you can choose, I curse you and I'm giving you nothing, or you can choose to bless. Now, I understand that that is a very difficult thing to do because even you can hear it and you can feel it in the room right now. There's some people that are going through some thoughts in their head like, how am I supposed to forgive somebody? How am I supposed to bless somebody? How am I supposed to offer up this grace and this mercy after what they did to me? Going through the Rolodex going like, if my enemy found themselves on my doorstep, I would either shut the door on their face or I would kick them while they're down. There is no way I would bless them by pouring coals on their head. How on earth am I supposed to bless them? Here's how. Because ultimately, what we forget sometimes is that the roles were reversed once. Ultimately, one day, we came to heaven's door and we had nothing to offer in return. We we didn't have anything to bring to God and our fire was out, our bowl was empty, our life was a wreck, we'd done evil. And yet we came to Jesus and we said, will you bless me? Will you forgive me? Will you offer your grace and your mercy to me, even though I don't deserve it? And in our moment of deepest need, God did not shut the door on us. God did not kick us while we were down. God did not go through a litany of all the sins that we committed. He said, put that bowl on top of your head and I will bless you instead of curse you. I will forgive you and offer you mercy and grace and healing and joy. And even though you don't deserve any of it, I am pouring out my blessing on your life. So now he looks back at you and he says, freely you have received all of this. I'm asking you to freely give it to some other people. Freely you've received my grace. Freely you've received my forgiveness. Will you pour that out on some other people? I'm asking very simply today, church, will we be those who pour coals on our enemies' heads? Will we be those who refuse to take vengeance into our own hands, but will actually respond to evil with good? There is a decision that lies before you today. I don't know the specifics of your situation, God does, but the choice is there. What do you want? Do you wanna get back? Or do you want to get blessed? And that decision is ours to make. I pray that we choose to heed the voice of Abigail and we choose blessing today. May we be known as a community in our city that is not looking for ways to get back, but for ways to bless those. Yes, even those who've hurt us and offended us and inflicted pain on us. May we be those that bless in Jesus' name, amen. I want to pray that over you as we conclude today. I want you to close your head and close your head. Close your eyes and bow your head. <sighs> Father, we love you. We love you today. Jesus, I thank you that when we came to you with an empty vessel, with nothing to offer, that you poured out your grace and your mercy on us. You blessed us when we didn't deserve it. And Father, for right now, for every image, every name, every situation that is being awakened in people's hearts, I pray that it would be met with grace, it would be met with forgiveness, God, that it would be met with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to respond differently than our culture tells us we should respond. I pray right now, even this week, for the capacity, every person who's here, every person who's watching, the capacity to respond to evil with good. And as I'm praying that and we conclude here in just a moment, I, I, I would, I'd be willing to bet there's probably a couple of folks in the room today that find themselves in a situation where they would say, hey, Pastor Tim, I, um, I see what you're saying about responding to other people, but I am actually that person right now with an empty bowl on my head coming before Jesus. I, I, I once had some flames maybe, but my fire is burned out and I got nothing left to give or, I've never come to the door of heaven and asked for God to pour out His grace on me. And if you're here today and that's you, I wanna give you an opportunity to make things right with God before you leave this place. It's the whole reason we're here. If you know that things are, are not okay between you and Jesus, I wanna pray a very simple prayer with you, before, you conclu- before we conclude here. But before I do that, I just would love to see who I'm praying with. If, if that's you, would you quickly slip up your hand and look at me so that I know who I'm praying with this morning? Thank you, got you. Yeah, I got you right there. Yeah, right there, right there, right there. Come on. Yeah, right there in the back. Hallelujah, lots of people. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) The whole family over there, that's cool. All right, you can put your hands down. I'm gonna pray this very simple prayer. You can pray right there in your seat, in your heart. You don't have to say it out loud, but just repeat it in your heart after me. Jesus, thank you for giving your life for mine. Today, I hand my life over to you. I know I don't have much to offer. I'm here as an empty vessel but I'm asking that you would pour out your grace and your mercy on my head today. I receive your forgiveness for my past. More importantly, I receive your spirit to help me walk this thing out. Help me to be your disciple, to walk in your ways from this day forward until I see you in heaven and you say, enter into the joy before you. Well done, good and faithful servant. I give you it all today in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, can we just thank God for every person making that decision today? So good. Gosh, I love church. All right, listen, if you just prayed that prayer before you get out of here today, um, I wanna help you take your next step. Here at the Father's house, we're incredibly passionate about the practical nature of walking out your faith. And there's a card called Next Steps card. It's one of the seats around you. Uh, And before you get out of here, if you just prayed that prayer, would you do me a huge favor? Give us your name, check the little box that says, I made a decision to follow Jesus today. And as you walk out uh, of our auditorium and you'll see our connect table over there on the right, Um, Would you walk over to that table, hand them this card, get a free Bible in exchange, and and let us help you take that next step. We have something called First 40 around here. During the first 40 days of your journey with Christ, we wanna help you to read the Bible, to pray, understand all about it. There's like some personal coaches that are gonna walk you through all of that. We can only do that if you identify yourself. So please check that box and take it back there. Also, as mentioned earlier, your very next step is to be water baptized. Yeah, yeah, people are celebrating already. Uh, We'd love to do that with you during one of our weekend services. By the way, let me just say this. One of the coolest things that happens during baptism, when you share your story, I know that's terrifying sometimes and like talking on a microphone, writing a story, all that. One of the coolest things that happens is that somebody else in this room resonates with your story and you become the motivation by way of the Holy Spirit speaking to them for them to take their next steps. So even if that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, embrace that. Come on, let us celebrate with you and let your story motivate somebody else's story. So you can check that box as well and say, I wanna get baptized. Is it raining? It's kind of raining. Okay, why don't you stand to your feet. It's kind of raining. So you can kind of decide if you want to have coffee and donuts on the porch. Although, if you want to take it to go and just leave us all here by ourselves and just steal from the house of the Lord and leave, that's fine too. But if you'd like to stick around and hang out, we'd love to meet you on the porch with some coffee and donuts in hand. Uh, also, if you need prayer for anything, I'm going to have our prayer team come this way. Uh, you can come down to the front. We'd love to pray for you before you get out of here. Otherwise, thank you so much for coming to church. If you're going to Discover Week 2, you know who you are. You can hover over to the family room in about 10 minutes. Have an amazing Sunday. We love you. We'll see you next weekend. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.